and welcome to the One Broke Actress Podcast. The One Broke Actress Podcast. The The One One Broke Broke Actress Actress Podcast. Podcast. This is the podcast giving you an honest account of actor life. I mean, can we just be honest for a second? Plus a few lessons I learned in the process. This is what I'm saying. Nobody knows anything. I'm your host, Sam Valentine. Hello, guys. Welcome to episode 10 of season four of the One Broke Actress Podcast. Are you sick of my voice yet? Because I pretty much am. Um, I am finishing up some travels this week, but I wanted to get this podcast out to you on time as per usual because this week we have a special guest who is one of my acting coaches. You guys have met several of them over the past couple of seasons, and most recently I have been training at John Rosenfeld Studios. Uh, It came up quite a bit last week in the roundtable episode, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago in the roundtable episode. Time flies. Um, and, uh, I, that's where I met this week's podcast guest. We'll get to her in just a second because we have one more solo episode coming out this coming Thursday. So make sure to listen to the end of the podcast to get the topic of the solo episode. Uh, and make sure you're following me on Instagram and you are subscribed to the One Broke Actress newsletter, onebrokeactress.com. Follow me at Sam Valentine at One Broke Actress. I think that's everything. Is that everything? Every week I forget stuff. I swear to God. Okay, I think that's it. (laughs) Episode 10 of season four. You think I would have had this down by now. Let's get into the podcast. This week's guest, Stephanie Black, is a highly accredited actress and an acting coach. She also helps... She helped found and runs I Am a Theater in Los Angeles. Uh, to this week's episode, we get really into chatting about side jobs, how she sustained work in Los Angeles. She had some pretty crazy jobs. I never thought that I would have a full conversation with someone about a swingers party on this podcast, but we managed to do it. Um, She also talked about how she deals with frequent auditions, um, how agents and casting directors talk to her about weight and gaining and losing weight, and about how she coaches people and the benefit of her working as a coach. Guys, she also knows theater in Los Angeles. What a freaking win. We think it doesn't exist, but it sure does. And she's going to tell us all about it. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please enjoy Stephanie Black. And you go there and you taste like like a whole tub full, basically. The, he makes a cookies and cream one that's basically just like candy. But cookies and cream? Yeah, but I was like, that's not, I'm not going to buy that, but I'll taste it. <laughs> it's like sampling at Pinkberry. Okay, cool. So we'll just kind of get started. Um, So yeah, feel free to do your thing. Um, And so Stephanie Black. Hey. Stephanie with an F. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Learned that the hard way. Um, Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Uh, And coming early in the morning, which actors never do, which is awesome because I love doing this stuff early in the morning. Uh, Well, you know, I'm over 30, so I can't (laughs) sleep in as late as I used to. So I'm up and I might as well do something productive. I always try to schedule rehearsals. I'm like, who wants to run lines like 10? And they're like, can you do later? And I'm like, oh, but I've been up for five hours. I know. Um, okay, so how did you end up in L.A.? You're from Pennsylvania originally. I'm from Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, I ended up in L.A. So I went to college in New York City. Mm-hmm. went to NYU. Um, loved New York. My mom's family's all from New York. My dad's family's all from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So when you're from that part of Pennsylvania, you're either like a New York family or a Philly family. Mm-hmm. But we were a New York family. So I spent my whole childhood like in Manhattan with my grandparents, visiting my cousins, aunts and uncles. Um, that sounds really cool from my Midwest upbringing. Oh, I mean, also, it, I it, dreamed of going to NYU when I was a kid. 
I mean, the dream, it, it was awesome. It's not as like glamorous as people, I think, sometimes think. I think it's I thought when I was a kid, mm-hmm. wanting to go there. Um, but I, I just was like with a kid who was, I was so close to New York that I was always able to go there. And so when I was like 14, I was able to like take a bus by myself and meet my, I would meet my friends from summer camp in the city and we'd uh, stand outside the Nederlander Theater on 41st Street and we would wait for intermission at Rent and we would go see the second act of Rent. <laughs> That's so I think cool. we did that like 20 times at least. Wow. So we you just, really know the second half of Rend. Yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> I like learned, this was like our like cool thing to do. We would like stand outside and wait and then we would just like walk in and standing room. That's <laughs> so funny. I, I think I've seen the first act of Rent on Broadway maybe like three times and then I saw the second act like 20. <laughs> That's yeah. so something you can do when you're like 15. Oh yeah. And you're what, like a big musical theater dork. Is that when you realized or when did you realize that acting was a thing that you could do? Um, you know, I don't sound so like cheesy, but like I, I didn't like acting never like came upon, I I didn't like make a decision. It wasn't something I was like down a path and then I switched gears. Honestly, I started doing this when I was a kid. My sister, my older sister was into dance and theater and stuff. And so when I was like three or four or something, I would tag along. And then I auditioned for, we have a really, a really strong community theater um, in Allentown where I'm from, like a, it's a big arts community there. And so there was a lot of like really high quality theater too. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a big equity house there as well. Um, which isn't there anymore, sadly. Mm. But, um, because of that, I was able to audition and get cast. And I just started working as a kid in theater and doing regional stuff and, uh, a little like model, you know, like all that, that stuff. And like, I, my sister was in a production of Annie that some talent agent came to see her and, then and I was like in the wings like in my like dance leotard or something like dancing around doing it and so they wanted to like sign both of us and my (laughs) mom was like no I don't know you know it it was just I was just a kid actor and at starting at the age of 10 I went to this performing arts summer camp and I literally just been doing it and when I got to the age of high school it was kind of clear thinking about college that like this was obviously the path I was going to go down so it was kind of like you were an athlete you were just, you just did it from a young age. You kept doing it through school. Yeah, I think I just, it was just something. My parents were huge theater appreciators. So they took us to see Broadway shows since from like the very young age of three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just around it and appreciated it. And so it was just something that was clear I had an inclination towards. Even though I was, I was an athlete in high school and doing stuff like that. But you have to make choices when you get to a certain age, like at the end of high school. And I just always knew I wanted to do this. It's just kind of like, not chose me, but it's, it's literally just like I was like born to do it and never stopped and just kind of you set little goals. And so first it was like go to college for for theater. And I was like, cool, OK. And I go to NYU. And then it's like, all right, when you get out of school, you have to get a representation. And so you make that little goal. And then now it's, you know, almost like 20 years later, I'm going to my 20th high school reunion next year, wow. which is crazy. And I, I don't even care about aging myself anymore when I right. say things like that because I'm now I'm proud that I'm like I'm I'm still doing this I'm still successful and I'm at the age I'm at. That's a, such a good point. Yeah, and I haven't like walked away yet. You know, um, <laughs> I only think about it like once a week. Yeah, but. <laughs> I haven't like thrown in the towel. I feel like I'm still you know at my standards I so much further to go. But I think a lot of people would consider me pretty successful. I would definitely. So, thank well, you. that's why you're sitting here. Oh, thank you. But, so yeah. <laughs> so when you graduated from NYU, 
why, first of all, I want to talk about getting reps out of school. Yeah. And second of all, did you pick to go to LA right away? And why did you end up here as opposed to if you were so East Coast and being trained in more theater, why did you end up here doing film and television? Um, so that was a really easy answer, which is that all of my girlfriends moved to LA and I didn't want to stay in New York alone. <laughs> so basically what happened was I got out of school. I, LA was never in my periphery. I was like, in college, I was interning for casting directors. I was, um, I'd had reps since I was, uh, a freshman in college <clears throat> Excuse me. and, um, I was auditioning for Broadway, for off-Broadway, all that stuff, um, for any films some whatever was happening. TV was like just kind of burgeoning in New York. There mm-hmm. wasn't a lot of shows. There was like, obviously the, all the Law and Orders and like Sex and the City and The Sopranos and that was kind of like it. Right. Um, so not a ton, not a ton of options HBO there. was still trying to get a better rap. They, I mean, they were, well, they were starting out, but they were having, I mean, they weren't actually starting out. They'd been around for a long time, but they'd had these shows and, you know, it was kind of like if you hadn't been on a Law and Order or The Sopranos, like you weren't really a New York actor. <laughs> um, but I, I got out of school and I just went right into that world and was auditioning and I went to the Williamstown Theater Festival and I was interning at casting. I was doing readings and workshops. I started like two different theater companies we were putting up weird shows in bar under bars on St. Mark's in the village and like doing the thing that you do, creating like a lot of, you know, fun theater and auditioning and hoping to be in a Broadway musical. That was kind of the dream. And I never really saw past that. Um, and then, uh, one by one in the, in the, like the three years after I graduated, my best girlfriends started like migrating West. And when Mm. the last one went and called me and she's like, I don't think I'm coming back. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so at the time, I was also hitting a little bit of walls where I was kind of um, hearing, I think New York at the time was a little close-minded as to um, what kind of type you could be and like what the different roles for women were mm-hmm. in theater and film and television. I don't think there were a lot of things showing like a, a, a different kind of leading lady. Um, and at the time... And still, I mean, I've never been a skinny girl and I've never been a super overweight girl. I've always been somewhere in between. And because of that, I'd walk into agents' offices or, you know, casting offices and I would hear, you either need to gain 30 pounds or lose 30 pounds, which is just like a crazy, and if you really think about that, that's actually like a crazy thing. Like, it's a huge range for someone to go, like, why would you ever gain 30 pounds? Because that just seems not healthy. And to lose 30 pounds, like, people don't understand what that could possibly take. And also, it's such, it's like a, a, it's such an arbitrary number per body type and such a, like... It was crazy. They're either, like, you need to be this, like, tiny, skinny girl um, or you need to be, you know, very substantially overweight. Like, because... And this is also the time of Hairspray, the musical, yeah, being, okay. like, very prevalent on Broadway. So, I auditioned for Hairspray 13 times before I moved to Los Angeles. You're shitting me. No. Everything from the workshop to the original Broadway cast, the first national tour, to Broadway replacements, to the second national tour. L- even up through the, was it Fox? Whoever did the the TV. The live one. The live mm-hmm. one. I even still like, and that was like, at that point, I mean, it had literally been 15 years since I'd been auditioning for the same show and still auditioning to play a 15-year-old. And at that point, I think, because that was only like three or four years ago, I was like in my mid-30s already. And I was still auditioning <laughs> to play this part, right? It was just crazy. Mm. I mean, and I did everything from wearing, like, four sweaters to the auditions to to wearing my, like, most flattering outfit to show off when I'd lost when I'd lost a little bit of weight, like, how thin I had actually become, to having conversations about what I wear fat suits to. Like, 
this was like happening a lot to me in New York and I was going into, it's kind of a mind fuck. Oh my God. It was a, it's probably when I started going to therapy because I was like, who am I, who am I, who am I supposed to be? Um, this in-betweener thing was really confusing. Um, and it was, it was really hard in the musical theater world. I found to be really kind of ruthless and it was very goal oriented. The girls were very competitive. You go into these waiting rooms and it was just like an air of competition that I was starting to, what used to be like so fun for me as a kid. I was like, this is kind of gross and I'm auditioning for the same thing over and over and I don't really even like it. And I, I, it just became, um, something for, I was like, this is not like fun for me anymore. Yeah. So that was right at the time that, um, my girlfriends were moving and, um, I decided to, in New York, there's this place called the Actors Connection, which I don't even know if it's still a place, but mm, we'll look it up. Um, it's when this is right at the beginning of workshops starting. Now I know like workshops mm-hmm. aren't a thing anymore. There's all kinds of different opinions on that, mm-hmm. which I can share mine. In the yeah, second. we can get to that. Definitely. Sure. Um, but at the time, they had this thing called the L.A. Connection. And you basically paid like $1,000 and you went to New York or you went to L.A. for 10 days and you did basically like a week-long workshop in Los Angeles with agents, managers, and casting directors. Everything from feature to episodic to commercial, all different kinds of agents and managers. Um, and, and basically you did workshops. So you met with them, you did Q&As, you got to, in a group setting, do scenes um, and you had to audition for it. So the quality of actors was actually pretty decent that I was, I was with spending that week with. And then you would have one-on-one time with everybody that you met there. Oh, that's cool. Which was really cool. Um, so based, so I went there to do that and was sort of telling my story where I came from, what I was doing. And I was, and I was really open about, you know, I'm at this place where I'm hitting this wall where people are telling me that I'm not a type that can work and I have to either do this or this. Did and you hear that same thing in these meetings? No. So these these people I met were like, no, you're a great type. There's nobody really like you out here. And things are starting to shift. And at the time, you know, I was in my mid twenties and I was, I, I, I look very young. Like I don't, I you look do at look least 10 young. years younger than I am. Yeah. Um, so I was definitely still playing in high school then. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of opportunity. And so I heard that from at least five people. And one of the agents said, if you move out here, you know, I'll take you on. Um, and my agent back in New York, I was with, um, I don't even care about saying this because this guy was a dick. Great. Um, he uh, told me, first of all, he told me that I would never be pretty enough to be on a soap, so he wouldn't even submit me. Then somehow through, I guess, my manager at the time, literally the last audition I had before I left New York was for a contract role on Guiding Light. And I went in and I, and I tested, and I, and I almost got this part, and I ended up not actually getting it because they wanted like a, a very overweight girl for the part. Um, but I that was like the last thing. And so I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like this guy's telling me I'm never pretty enough, but I'm like getting this close to it. And I, he was just a jerk. Um, so I came back to New York and I, I had just started dating a guy and I was like, I don't do long distance. I'm going to move to LA. If you want to, you can too, up to you. (laughs) Um, and so we ended up moving and I like, told the agent, I was like, I'm moving to New York. I told my my old manager, I'm like, I'm moving or I'm moving to to LA. LA. So I just like, cut it all off. I told my old boss, I'm like moving to LA and kept my apartment for a couple of years, but just, um, drove cross country with my mom and like made this shift. And when I got there, I had this agent, um, who turns out she just had like a nervous breakdown, Oh fuck! but she was very sweet, not that efficient. However, she did get me in the room for my first 
within the first six months I was there, I got, um, uh, I booked my first guest star. I booked like a top of show guest star on Without a Trace. So it was my first job ever. Wow. First time ever on a TV set too. And it was crazy. I had to be raped. I had to have a sex scene. And then I had to die. Holy shit. I, I, it was a, a amazing, amazing first job. And yeah. you f- they made you feel really comfortable and stuff. It was awesome, yeah. But that was my out of the gate. All I'd had are theater credits and like a couple little indie things from New York, but I'd never been on a TV set even. And my first day I had to be on a set in a big scene with all these extras and I had to like kiss a hot dude. It was, a, it was like a very crazy way to kind of start. But um, so that agent was great and she got me that job, which and then that led me to a film role like a month later, which led me to then my like first manager in LA. Okay. And then I kind of shifted. But I've... We can we can talk through the, the yeah rep I'd game because I've had maybe s- almost ten different agents and re- and oh thank God managers since I've been in LA I've I hit on so many different people and I've I've had met people who and interviewed people who have talked about you know I've I've been through the gauntlet of meeting managers and agents and switching around and then I've met people who just have that that high school love pipe dream and be like I'm still with my first manager and I'm like I. That is so crazy to me. It's like marrying your high school sweetheart. Like I mean, as Alicia yeah. Ossie said on her podcast, um, that one audition, I was like, that is definitely what that is. But I want to take you like a little bit further back sure. for a second. When you came from New York to LA, mm-hmm. um, so you had an agent basically. You didn't know about her nervous breakdown. Quote yeah, I got here. <laughs> I started with her. She covered me theatrically and commercially because a lot of people mm-hmm. were doing that at the time. Um, now... Okay. Now I'm I feel like uh, across the board doesn't happen as often. It doesn't need to. It really it, it really depends. I mean the commercial thing is like an enigma to me. I don't understand that world. I don't work in that world. In like the 15 years I've been in LA, I've booked one commercial. That very much surprises me. I, know, people I feel say like that a you're lot. very commercial. Oh, thank you. I don't know. I've maybe been called back maybe 10 times. And I am I've maybe shocked. been on a veil 3 times in 15 years and I've worked in over 40 episodes of ne- episodic television. So well, so I don't understand <laughs> you live it. In somebody's dream. <laughs> I don't know. It's very confusing to me cuz all I want is I'm like I want that money, you know. <laughs> well, I tell you I just got a commercial canceled, so but I'm checks on all of us. But yeah. um when you made that switch, did you have side jobs in New York and then when you got to LA, how did you sustain day-to-day life? between acting jobs okay so when I was in New York I got out of school and I got because I'd interned in casting I got right into the casting world so I worked as a casting assistant in New York and then I worked for um this guy Andy Polk who had started a company called the Cape Cod Theater Project which was just like it still exists it's an awesome um company they do development of new plays and musicals up in Cape Cod every summer so I would uh I worked out of his home office and read a million plays, learned a lot about development. Basically, he taught me everything. Oh, what a great side job. It was a great. It, it played into everything I love and what I was and, – and it, it turned out to very much be the instigator for how I end up, once I got to L.A. years later, starting a theater company that's now, you know, I'm running as an artistic director 12 years later. So that was definitely sort of a seed planted then. Mm-hmm. So when I left New York, I was doing those jobs and I was working at um, – a restaurant. Uh, I'll go back and further. So when I got out of college, everyone's like, get a restaurant job, right? I had no experience because I'd worked in like a coffee shop in high school, but I'd never waited tables. For some reason, I wasn't able to get a waiting tables job. Um, but I was able, but so I decided I was going to take the a bartending course in New York, you know, and a lot of people did that and you get like trained as a bartender mm-hmm. and then they're supposed to place you. 
So I did the course. It was fine. It was easy. I go out to start doing like the job placement interviewing. And for whatever reason, I think because I look so young, people just would not hire me. Oh, I think you're, I think you'd be the funniest bartender at like a biker bar. Yeah. But when I was 22, <laughs> you probably looked like I you looked were like I was 15. Yeah. So they'd be like, we just can't. <laughs> and so there was $250 wasted. Nobody would hire me. And I was like, okay. And so then I, so then I was working in casting. So I was like, well, I can't get that job. So then I tried again and I got hired at a restaurant. Um, I'm, and I'll preface all this by saying I am a terrible waitress I'm a terrible liar. So being nice to people when I don't want to be and taking orders from people I don't respect is not my jam. Got it's it. why I run my own business. I'm not good at, at, at like authority. Terrible at, at serving jobs. Terrible at it. And I've gone through a lot of them. And I, at another point, I finally realized that I just cannot do this anymore. So my first like real restaurant job in New York was at a, um, this place called Earl's. Oh, man. It was like only female servers, which tells you the clientele we were, you Got know, it. serving. It was in Murray Hill. Um, I started working there. I opened this restaurant, so they had just opened. It was like a part of a restaurant chain. We wore shirts that were too tight. Uh-huh. We served buckets of Peps Blue Ribbon. Oh, it was yeah. a southern barbecue <laughs> kind of place. Um, and I started working there um, the year of uh, so after right after I graduated, which was right after we went to a, the Iraq War which mm. is right when um, President George W. Bush got reelected. And I had to work the morning after the reelection. And I had to wait on a table of like 10 dudes that were all Republicans who were having a victory lunch. At Earl's. At Earl's. That and they were drinking I need buckets know. of PBR. And that was kind <laughs> the of... the morning shift. Yeah, it was kind oh, of Jesus. like the last straw where... I got actually sent home that day because my manager was like, you're just being so rude. Like, you you have to leave. But I had such seniority at this place because I'd opened it. So I got away with a lot until finally he was like, I can't fire you, so I'm transferring you to a different restaurant in the chain. Oh, and my God. He, he was trying to transfer me to some, I think it was like some sushi place in like uh, the Flatiron District. And so I went there to interview with them, but I was it was right before Christmas. And I was like, well, I'm going on vacation with my family. And they're like, well, you can't. You're, you're new, new at this restaurant, so we can't have you leave that, and so we can't hire you. So I went back to, to the manager of Earl's, and I was like, um, they said they can't hire me, and you're saying that you won't – I'm like, you want me to quit, but I won't quit because I need you to fire me so I can collect unemployment. Ah. And so he finally – and I was like, and if you don't, then I'm staying at your restaurant. <laughs> and I'm going to stay as I am. <laughs> and he just hated me. And so he just like – he was just like, fine, you're fired. And that I was able to claim. That was my first instance of unemployment in New York. And ah. man, was that – that has been the, the journey of a decade of my <laughs> – Love-hate relationship with collecting unemployment That is a whole... I should do a whole podcast about unemployment. I've tried... Yeah. I mean, I have been through the gamut of that, and I know as much as one could about it. And this is when you had to, like, call in, and it was all, like, dial tone. Oh, shit. So you'd have to, like, hit one. It's like, did you look for work? One for yes. Like, Oh, my God. It it is very easy now. You can do it online. It was crazy, yeah. (laughs) The craziest thing is that, like, I went on that family vacation, and I tore my meniscus in my knee, and uh, Did you have health insurance? Oh, yeah, I had all the charts, but okay. I was like, to- I couldn't work. So thank God I was collecting unemployment because it was winter in New York and I was oh, completely incapacitated for like two months. Wow. So it was kind of like serendipitous in a way. So I went from that restaurant and then I was like, De- I can't do restaurants. So I, I think I went back into casting for a little bit. Did you carry that over when you came to LA too? 
The unemployment? The, the casting. The... No. Work. So I, I did the, I was still doing the casting thing and then I um, ended up getting a job at um, uh, this Mexican restaurant. This And this was like the greatest job ever. I wish I'd had a job like this in LA. It was this really uh, like kind of, not seedy, but it was just kind of like a shitty Mexican restaurant um, in Chelsea. It was kind of like you walk downstairs it was, and then there was this huge outside patio um the everything was overpriced but authentic the food was actually excellent but our drinks were disgusting i mean we would make daily the sangria and the margaritas and like no joke the margarita mix was like a handle of like shitty tequila a handle of shitty vodka who knew that vodka was in margarita mix? what triple sec it's not by the way <laughs> yeah it's definitely not uh and then it was like cans of frozen like minute made lemonade concentrate holy shit yeah and the sangria was a huge jug of Carlo Rossi sangria with another handle of vodka in it, triple sec, and then sliced up oranges. I mean, it was just like disgusting. Why did they put so much vodka in these I don't know. Drinks? And we charged like 10 bucks for margarita. But we did fresh. Well, it sounds like one and you'd but be we on did the like, floor. We did like fruit flavors. So we would blend like fresh fruit. And so you pour that in it. So it like made it seem kind of fancy. I like, I like that you're offsetting Carlo Rossi with fresh fruit. I mean, it was disgusting. I think that's it, the wine that you hold like this in the jug. Yeah. People were, would people, people would order a Patron margarita. It would be that shitty margarita with a shot of Patron dumped in it. No. And that was a $12 drink. That was a $12 drink. So this place was such a dump. Um, but I loved that it. It was fun. It was great. I mean, on Cinco de Mayo, cause I worked there for like a year and a half. So I kind of went from like, May to May, I think, or something mm-hmm. like that. So I've worked, I worked two single males there, and I think I would clear like five hundred or wow. s- five hundred to eight hundred that night or something. Well, if you give people that drunk, I bet they tip you. Oh yeah, and the food was like everything was overpriced and mm-hmm. and great. Um, but one day I walked into work. Also, no one in the kitchen really spoke English. The guy who owned it, I'm pretty sure that Do you there speak was, Spanish. I mean, restaurant Spanish, you know, okay. mm-hmm. enough that I could like kind of converse with them. But I'm pretty sure that, like, nobody was documented there. Um, and I don't think the guy who owned the place had even all the licenses to even run the place. Ah. And him and my manager had, like, some weird tension. And one day I show up to work. And there's only, like, three of us that work there. And then the manager. And I show up and he's not there. And, like, he never shows up and nobody knows where he is. And I call the owner. And I'm like, what are we supposed to do? He didn't show up. And they're like, you're the manager now. <gasps> no. And I was like, What? And so, luckily, there was one night that I'd stayed late to help him close out, and he sh- kind of showed me how we did it, because it was, like, super all under the table, all you walking with it's cash. a lot of cash. Um, but I kind of remembered it, so I, like, made up my own bastardized version of this to, like, close out every night. <laughs> and I did that for, like, four months, and then I, and I moved to L.A. And when I came back the first time from L.A., I think it was, like, Thanksgiving of the next year. The place had totally shut down. They'd found out that this guy had him paid, like, $3 million in back taxes for was, the outside patio. He'd never been permanent for that patio. I was literally going to ask what taxes were due for this yeah. organization. Yeah, nothing. So I, like, <laughs> randomly ended up being the manager somehow and then Mr. moved manager. to L.A. And, like, the other girls who were working there, like, no one could do anything. So the place just, like, totally collapsed. It was – but it was a really fun place. It was such a dump. Um, it's so so I then I but I had like that job and like the so other then place. You had been a restaurant manager on your resume when you came to LA. I mean for like a second, yeah. <laughs> so when I came to LA, um, one of my best friends had gotten this job at Ammo, which um, used to be on Highland. It's not. It's not really a restaurant anymore. It was a great place, very industry heavy. Did lunch. It was one of those places in New York. You didn't have this where you 
restaurants were open till three and then they would take a break between like three and five and then it reopened for dinner. Yeah, the only that, place I know that does that is the Club Avalon on Vine. That well, really a lot of LA restaurants <laughs> did it, at least when I first moved here. I never really? heard of that. So this ended up being a great job because you could have an audition in the morning and then work your lunch shift and then on your break if you were working a double or you get off in time to make a producer session, which was usually mm. in the afternoon. So it was a really accommodating place to work. Oh, you mean, I'm thinking... I got you. I was thinking AM. Oh, no, no. I meant like in the afternoon. That's like, like a club like a, thing. Like a, like a, si- like a siesta yes, break yes, or yes. something. Some, some of them do. Yeah, I think some places do this. So it was great. So my friend um, Amy had gotten here. Before. She was a, sort of the first one. I don't know if she was actually the first or second one to move of us. But she got this restaurant job. And when we all moved, because we all moved within like a year of each other, we all went to this restaurant. So we're working at this restaurant with all of our best friends. She used to like set it up. It's like, here's your restaurant. Oh, fun. Um, and we'd work, and I was a day bartender and like a food runner. Um, and it was like this great thing. It was like all of my best friends. It was such an easy job. Um, but I'm not a good waitress, and I was not a great bartender. And I would, I just didn't want to do it. Like, it was just so clear I didn't want to do it. <laughs> but I like tried, and I would get it, but I was just like, never never super into it mm-hmm. I love the people I worked with and it was a really great place but um I was just not great and I think the last straw was I'd had a, um, a death in the family and I had to take some time off and I could tell that I think he wanted to like fire me before that happened but then that happened so he didn't and so it kind of carried out um and then when I had come back and I was just like not doing great um I ended up testing for my first pilot ever wow and I didn't get it, which was a huge bummer. And the next day I walked in to work a lunch shift and I had to serve the whole creative team of that pilot. You're shitting me. No. And I basically gave my two weeks that day. Because I was like, this is terrible. This makes me feel like a piece of shit. Um, I'm Did clearly they recognize not good at this. You? Oh, yeah. It was a very awkward. That is so awkward. I mean, it got even more awkward. So that happened and then I gave my two weeks. And so then I started the like error of me doing all these like weird little side jobs, which I can tell you about. Mm-hmm. And one of the first ones was dog sitting through a friend of mine who had started this like dog sitting business. And the first client that she puts me with is the casting director of that pilot. So I go and knock on his door and he opens it and we're both just like, ah, this is weird. Oh my God. <laughs> it was so, so did I that pilot up, end up getting picked up? It did. And then it didn't last after three episodes. Okay, I want to know what's going um, but what's hilarious is that I end up like staying at his home for four days watching his two dogs sleeping in his bed. <laughs> like it was just a very, I was like, LA is a weird place. It's a weird freaking town. It's a weird, weird town. Um, so, so once that restaurant thing, life was over, I was like, I can never, oh, I had also worked at another restaurant before that. I completely forgot. And I got <laughs> fired from that one. I, I forget. The restaurant life is not me. No. And God, I'm like going down this like path of uh, it's going to be 15 years in June that I've been in LA and I cannot believe that so I can't believe things I'm remembering now that I it's funny when you when you sit down and think about it there are it's the word survive doesn't quite surpass like the idea of living in LA because there's so many little pieces that like there's no ladder to climb but there's like a mound of sand you stand on top of every day. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's one of those things where you get to the top and then you slide further down and then you got to climb up it's again. It's definitely a mound of sand. <laughs> it's Yeah, I mean, oh my god, I totally forgot about that that job. So, so I, I got fired because I had sides faxed to the restaurant. This is before people were emailing sides. So you either 
got them faxed to you or like you had to go pick them. I don't even remember how you got them. Wow. But I didn't have a way to, I think I was out of town over Thanksgiving and I had an audition like right when I came back and they wanted, they wanted to give me the sides for some, I think it was like a movie or something and I didn't know how to get them. And so I was like, well, I guess here's a fax of where I work because I'll be at work the next day. And I land in L.A. from Thanksgiving break, and the manager calls me, and she's basically like, don't come back. And I was like, why? She's like, well, the side you had sides come in, and they, they're like, that's not okay. And so I was told I had to fire you. Oh. And I was like, what? And I had learned over 120 different kinds of cheese to work at this restaurant. Oh, sweet Jesus. So I was real annoyed because I had really spent some time preparing. I was trying to be better. <laughs> something to a fax machine and got fired. I had sides sent to a fax machine at a restaurant and got fired. And that, I think, was... I was just like, I don't know what even to do with that. But then I, I started working at Ammo because my, all my friends did. And I was like, well, I'll keep trying. And then after the pilot thing, I was like, and we're done. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is it. And we're done. So I transitioned into catering. So I started doing it's a lot like of, the next of course, step yep. of actor jobs. I oh love yeah. It. So I started catering through through Ammo because one of my other best friends ran sort of the catering de- department or whatever, and so I was doing like dr- lunch drop offs and doing like events and dinner parties, and it was just like really fun group of people, and there was like a couple different caterers that we all sort of worked on and off with, and um, it was actually a really fun time for us. We had we were just starting our theater company. Um, and so we were all working together and creating together and like all of us were just starting to have a now, couple jobs and, and little things were happening. Starting this theater company, did you, was this something that while you were working, you were like, God, I just want to do theater in LA and there's none. I want to do like, where, how did this start? And that tell us really about that. started because, um, we all got out here, a group of us that had gone to school together, and this is pre-iPhones, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, making your own content, the creating your own content world, like, that wasn't the game yet. People weren't, we weren't, no one was pushing that. We mm-hmm. were all in class, you know, because people tell you when you get to LA, you have to be in a class, so yeah. we did that. But there was no other, what else do you do? Um, there are workshops and stuff you can do. So we were like, well, we don't know how to make film, we know how to make theater, so we're like, what worked for us in New York? Let's just try it here. So we started putting on shows and we did like a showcase first and then it had a really great response. And then we decided to start this theater company and a friend of ours wrote a play for, there was eight of us at the start. Uh, our friend wrote this play about the LA subway and <laughs> it was like a myth, you know? And uh, we did this fun play and it was like 30 minutes long. It was too short, but we threw a huge party to raise money for it. And it had been this really successful thing. And that was kind of where I Am I was born. Um, the company's called I Am a Theater Company. Uh huh. And so we started. Um, and our who did friend, you start this with? I started this with um, my four best girlfriends: Katie Lowe's, uh, Sarah Utterback, Amy Rosoff, and Layla Ayed. And um, then three of our our guy friends: uh, Wes Whitehead, who was dating Amy at the time, Adam Shapiro, who is now married to Katie, mm-hmm. and Brandon Scott. Okay, I just heard a podcast with Adam Shapiro on it. Was he talking about And he about was this? talking about this. Oh, yeah. I didn't know you were this, involved in that. Okay, this, this, this is our origin story. Yeah, so... This is amazing. We've all been... the All of us girls have been friends for almost 20 years, and so we all came out here and we started this incredible business together, and Adam's been, you know, with it for however... Him and Katie have been together almost... I think more than a decade at this point. Um, so he he kind of came into our group through, through Katie right at the time we were starting it, which was kind of crucial because... He brought things like web design and an idea of marketing and um, and social media wasn't really starting yet, but like when it did, Adam was like right there, ready, knew how to use it. Um, 
he helped create like the branding for because we it used to be when we first started the company was I am a theater company, mm. and then we smushed the letters together to become IAMA. But it literally just means I am a theater company. That's all it means. It doesn't stand for anything. It's not like a weird like word of a different language. It just means it's I like am a theater company. Original branding. Yeah. <laughs> Getting rid of um, spaces. But this this thing gave us purpose and it gave us a platform for our work. And people weren't creating the kind of theater we were doing at the time. Nobody was writing plays for like young 20-somethings who, you know – were women who like used the word fuck a lot and like talked about sex in like a real way. And Leslie Headland, who we went to college with, was writing those plays. And she wanted to, ha- she had a lot to say. And we had a platform and we were all out here together being these, you know, s- struggling artists and trying to start our way at the same time. And so she came to us with her Seven Deadly Plays. And we, and that's how I am, really was started. And we did the first four of the seven in the first year in 2000. It was like 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just finished actually the, the, t- the seventh play last year um, for our 10th anniversary. And since, and in between like plays, I guess like four and seven, I mean, Leslie's career has just, you know, taken off and she's become, you know, one of the most exciting television writers and feature writers and playwrights, you know, out there. That's amazing. Um, and she gave us this wonderful foundation for us all to thrive as artists and grow and a platform for Iama to be something unique and special. When and you so, started with it, did you rent theater space? Oh, How yeah. did you make this work? We started, so when we were in college, the way that you raised money for your show was to throw a party. So we, that is like the model of like college theater and NYU was awesome at it and we were great at throwing parties. So when we came to LA, we we're like, well, we know how to throw parties to raise money. So that's mm-hmm. what we did. We threw these like, we threw a crazy part. Our first party we threw was called the Fellini Party. We had like hooked up with our other friends who had started another this company. This sounds like an actor party. <laughs> it was, there was, um, it was right when downtown was getting really gentrified and so all those lofts were being built. You know where Bestia is? Yes. So that used to be just, the best before Bestia existed, it was just like a, a burgeoning like loft complex. And so in that lobby, kind of where Bestia is and like that whole like middle alleyway, mm-hmm. we threw a party. How did you rent that? Our friend was about to buy a loft there, and so they just, like, let us do it. She ended up not buying a loft. But so we threw a huge party in, like, the courtyard of this loft warehouse building thing. Did you just charge people downtown? We We charged people. We projected Fellini movies. We had a fire breather. We had a raffle. We had a crazy dance party. We gave out free, like, spaghetti, and then we had Palm and some other vodka sponsor us. Like, we, I don't know how we got that even. But we threw this crazy rager and we made like a ton of money and that was kind of the start. And then we would throw parties all the time and then those parties kind of evolved into different kinds of fundraising events and we've, as we've gotten savvier over the years and now we're like, you know, a real functioning business with real, um, you know, now we don't throw a party, we do like a charity buzz, Mm -hmm. you know, fundraising campaign. Um, But we still sometimes throw throw some parties and, um, but they were... They were really fun and crazy and like we were looking through the archives like a couple months ago and we were coming across that pictures from that first party and just like random people like young Hollywood people who were there like there was a picture of like Topher Grace was in I was like I didn't know he was at that party okay and like there there was just like it was just really crazy to see all the people that were there and like who were around when we were starting this thing It's, it's been like a wild ride for sure but to get there you know, and for for me, for the whole like side job thing, mm-hmm. going from all these restaurants to catering, the thing I was I did the longest before 
um, shifting into teaching. Yeah, which I want to talk about. Was um, I worked for this amazing, amazing uh, event planner, Joe Garten. She's incredible. I met her because she was one of the um, event planners that we worked with when I worked in ammo and catering. And so she'd always hire ammo to cater. Um, but she's like one of the best in Los Angeles, um, throws the most beautiful, creative, interesting parties, weddings, anything. Um, and I got really lucky that she needed like some assistant and some, and some help. And so I went from the catering thing to working for her. And so I would help her prep events. And we, I mean, we did like crazy weddings where we were flown up to Sonoma. We did like batch the couple of the bachelor weddings cool like um and and then some just smaller little dinner parties and things and baby showers and um we did all the weddings for when Tori Spelling had that like wedding planning show (laughs) we were doing we were doing though there's one that was like um a traditional Indian wedding and I worked that um how fun it was crazy I got to work Josh Schwartz's wedding and see Imogen Heat perform live because he just like flew her out for the wedding that was very cool that's so cool it was it was a really good job you know it was like could be tedious hours, um, but Joe was really awesome and very supportive of what else I was doing. Um, but she taught me so much, and so when things got slow and she didn't need me anymore, I got um, a job with this company. It was a on the it was a magazine called LA Today. Doesn't exist anymore, and they had rented out this mansion on Sunset, like right in um, like in the Whiskey Gogo district, like mm-hmm. right above like Sunset and La Cienega, like right up in the hills there. And they called it the Sunset Mansion, and they were looking for an event coordinator to help book parties and run events out of this place. So I got this job. It was, like, kind of part-time, kind of full-time, super flexible, and every day I went to work at this beautiful mansion. But my job was to bring in events and book up the parties. And we did everything from gifting suites to holiday parties to birthday parties to, uh, like, DVD releases. Mm-hmm. Um, but the craziest thing was the, when it came to like holiday time, they didn't care who these who the people were. They just wanted me to fill the the calendar, Got whoever it. would pay the fees and not be difficult. <laughs> so the 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 year I was there over Christmas, the holiday party I booked. This, these guys reach out and they want to they want to have a party, and they're super easy to work with. They're like they pay cash up front, put the deposits down, like no problem. Um, and they're like it's just a private party we throw every month, and I was like. Okay, and I should have asked more questions. I didn't. Um, I have two predictions, and it's either and, very concerning yeah. or it's the people from that pilot you just did. No, 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 it's not. It's not the people from the pilot at all. No, so um, I get there the day for the loading and the setup, and a truck comes up, and they're like, "We have like we're here with all the mattress deliveries. Where do we put the mattresses?" And oh I was God. like, "What the fuck do you need mattresses for?" And the guy who's running it shows up. He's just like super nice. There's like two. It's like two couples who run this party. Um, from like Orange County, super nice, lovely, you know, people. Um, and he's like in, I guess can, the, the garage and I'm like, what? So they start and then the stripper pole arrives and then the women who are part of the party planners are dressed and ready to go and are basically dressed like little girls, like little school girls with, you know, huge platforms, the pigtails, the tiny skirt, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Um, and then they start instructing the people at the door and I'm kind of just like standing there overseeing all of it. And, um, I call my boss and I was like, I think you should come. I'm like, I'm not sure what this is. I think it's a sex party, but it's, and I'm like, but it's definitely a swingers party because at the door they're like, people have to be on the list. They have to have paid. The only people you can do is walk-ins are women. No men. You can only let women in. 
I was like, this is crazy. And so I'm like, you guys have, to, I'm like, you guys just have to come. Cause I, I can't be here alone. I just can't. Uh, and so the party starts going and about at like midnight is when like, I start to realize, Oh, this is definitely a swingers party. Like I start watching people like change partners and then Are you just hanging out. I'm just like standing literally off the side. I just have to be there. To make sure that, like, nothing goes wrong. No one breaks anything. I would just be... When the first, like, top comes off, I, like, remember I had called one of the bosses and he wasn't there yet. And I was like, you have to come now. I'm like, and the second you come, like, I'm out. I was like, I set it up. I did my job. But, like, I'm not staying here watching people have sex all night. Sorry. Not interested. Did they have food? Yeah, they had some food. Weird question. I'm just wondering, like, what do you serve at the sex party? Yeah, but it was just, like, the... I don't know. And then I like felt like so guilty because I was like, Am I, I'm judging these people. Like, what's wrong with me? Yeah. I'm, I'm horribly judging them. But all I could think about, and this is where I was like, oh, I'm so judgmental. And I felt really bad about it um, because like, I don't want to sex shame anyone. Like, do your thing. But I kept thinking, because they, they, I talked to them in the morning and they were telling me about themselves. And they have like teenage children. And I was like, if I found out when I was 17 that my parents had been hosting swinger parties for like the last 10 years on the weekends, I would lose my mind. Uh-huh. And because I'm a secret prude in that, like, I like to pretend that I was brought by the stork. My parents don't have sex. <laughs> I, they are not sexual people. I know that they are. I'm sure they, I mean, my parents have been married almost 50 years. I'm sure they have a very active sex life. I just want to know nothing about it. Absolutely. So I was, I couldn't get past that. So I couldn't even like look at these people in the eye because I just kept thinking, oh my God, your child's going to find out and lose their shit. So I like had to leave, oh but God. I had to be back in the morning for, to supervise the cleanup and the I loadout. I want to know. I was literally wiping up lube spots and dirty condoms no. from that floor for like a month. No, no. Yeah. And then we threw like another party a couple months later that Were you just, just had assholes where, where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And so I decided, I was like, I think I'm done with this. And then they kind of went under. They just like lost the least of the man. Like they just weren't doing well financially. And I so would absolutely watch a show with an episode about this job. It was... <laughs> It was crazy. It was just like, yeah, it was, it was so crazy. So that was the last time I did the event planning. But so like my like work resume had like a lot of random job, everything from, you know, waiting tables to working as a casting assistant to working in development to bartending, event planning. While you were uh, navigating all all these shifts Mm -hmm. and managing sex parties, um, how how did you? You're like so adorable. It's so funny to picture you doing this. I picture so you with crazy. your glasses on. Um, how how did you manage your acting life? So like you had all these different jobs. There's the theater company going on. How do you manage prepping for auditions? Did you continue to stay in class? What did you do? Um, yeah, you know what? I was still in class at the time. Um, when I first moved to LA, I started at uh, at Leslie Kahn, mm-hmm. as a lot of people do. Um, and that's where I met John. And then when... Um, and then I took it when I had this death in the family, it kind of, it really shook me and I shifted a little bit of my focus of like, um, how I spent my time. Mm-hmm. And I decided like, I didn't want to be in a class anymore. That was so industry driven. I needed a little bit of a break and I wanted to like feed my soul again with loving acting. So I did. Did you have the theater company at that time? We had, yeah, the theater company was, was just starting to kick off and we had just done, um, this first year of these four plays and I'd done two of them and they were wildly successful. I got new agents who were great from that. I got, um, I had, you that's got, when I had came, tested for that first pilot. Yeah, that's when I had that first test for the pilot. So I had a couple guest that's stars under my belt. from that show, from the 
from play? Um, I got those agents because I had met this casting director, Mara Casey, um, and she had a she had become friends. I don't know if she was teaching. She had started this class that I think my friend Katie was taking. So Mara came to see the show assistants that we did. And afterwards we talked and she's just like, what's your story? Like, where are you at? And I said, you know, I'm really looking. I, I think I need new reps. Like I, with this manager and I don't think it's really working. And I think my ambition levels exceeded hers, you know? Mm-hmm. And she was like, I'm going to set you up a meeting. And she set me up with Ellis talent group who I was with first, like seven, eight years and loved them to wow. pieces. Um, and they were awesome. And so, um, yeah, so that I got that through that. Um, I am has been very good for a lot, a lot of us. We've all gotten seen by a lot of great people through it. Um, but I was just thinking, I feel like that would feed your soul, like what you were looking for in class or did it I was looking, no, I was looking for something. I was looking to be just acting more and not just auditioning, you know, and not just like preparing scenes every week that was like an audition or that was filmed, you know, that were sort of truncated, you know, when you're working a lot of new material in class, especially like pilots and stuff, it's not proven material. So you don't, it doesn't necessarily work yet, which means, um, you're focusing more on making that work than like you're acting sometimes. I like, I struggle, I struggle, I struggle with, with that. Um, and so at the time I just really wanted to be doing like scenes from plays and I just wanted to be mm-hmm. acting. And this, um, class had sort of a, a rot, like, uh, started with, um, a lot of NYU alumni and people from Miami. Um, and so a bunch of us jumped into this class and it was just awesome. I did that for, I think three years and just really fell in love with acting again. I feel like it really awoke my instincts again. And like, what class was that? I didn't even have a name. It was at the art of acting studio. Okay. Um, this, uh, uh, Richard Green and Nikki Dukas taught us this class and um, it was just it was great and I was in, in class with a lot of my friends too and so we were it was people that I was really comfortable with and I had good like acting vocabulary with anyway cool. so it just it made the work excellent and we all kind of stayed in and out of that class for like three four years and then right when John was starting his own studios when it's John um, Rosenfeld by the way uh, John Rosenfeld <laughs> my mentor my friend my teacher <laughs> um, and uh, I'd heard that he'd started his new studio and I was thinking, I was like, Oh, I feel like I need to get back into a class that has a little bit more of like an awareness of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just called him up and I was like, Hey, I think I want to come back to class. And he's, I was like, this is the night I have free. Do you have a class that night? And he was like, yeah. And about like a week after I started, he was one, one night he like put me aside and was like, do you want to, have you thought about teaching and coaching? And I was like, yeah, I would love to. And he's like, great. Start coming to tool shop. And, um, start shadowing and like, then we'll get you going. And so did you feel qualified to coach actors or was there a little bit of, you know, that imposter syndrome? No, I absolutely felt qualified mostly because, you know, I went to school for the program I was in at NYU was for directing and acting. So I've been doing this a really long time and I have had, had the, um, uh, opportunity to work with actors in a director sense a lot and um, been on the other side of the table as a casting director a lot. Mm-hmm. And I start, I really had developed by that point a very strong vocabulary of how to talk to actors and I, of what worked for me, what works for other people. And I had started, you know, coaching friends without realizing what I was doing. Um, so I'd become, I think, equipped. In the, and, and I have always had a very strong, like, um, dramaturgical sense. So for me to pick up a script and identify genre and stakes and story and these things, that is just like a, like a little special magic power of mine. I can do it very quickly. 
and and I always and I think I always could, but when I met John, he gave me the vocabulary to identify what it was that I already knew. Mm-hmm. So after watching him, after being in, in his class for years, taking a break, coming back, and then sitting through tool shop and watching the way that he was coaching actors, I it just clicked immediately, and so I was like, great, I understand. And tool way. Sh- will you explain to people what tool shop is? So, so, yeah, tool shop is sort of the first class you take it at JRS that basically just gives you the vocabulary of the studio. It's mm-hmm. people of all levels. Everybody is, you know, doing the same work. And you're sort of breaking down the tools that we use at the studio. And it's all based around, you know, we say it's about building like a healthy constitution for the healthy working actor. Mm-hmm. And what that means is just identifying impulses and things technical versus organic and there's little vocabulary that we sort of established but it's um it's all about you know everything is text is based on choices choices and that are really about impulses and opinions and about thinking you know Mm -hmm. as actors like we need to think and have opinions and that is what informs our impulses and that's how and why we say what we say and do um and i think it was a very practical way of approaching acting after you've already gone through your education. Like I already have the process that I've cultivated over years from theater school, working in the industry and then being back in class. And so this, this kind of class was not about teaching me how to act. It was teach. It was about helping reinforce what I, the personal process I already had created and how to use it in the professional world. Love that. Um, so it's like how you get to something is like your own deal, mm-hmm. but the like why and what it is is what was really helpful about this class. And it's really like a gym. It's like working it out. Um, so I came to teaching that way and then coaching. Um, and at that time when I was doing that, um, I was still kind of like doing the event planning and I was starting to work for IAMA and we were, or I was always with IAMA, but we were growing. And so we were starting to get a little bit more funding and money. Um, and over the last like five years, I've phased out all service work. And oh, there was also like five years where I babysat like everybody in this town. I get I, <laughs> every casting director, showrunner, studio head, like name it. I babysat their children. Um, that was a very lucrative job for a long time and introduced me to a lot of people. Um, so I was doing like all these side gigs, um, and then I've slowly phased them out to. Where now um, I'm, you know, pretty much full time with IAMA, getting paid, and then I'm teaching and coaching as supplement. But all of that is is all supplemented by um, by by my acting career and yeah. by working in television. So I've gotten to a point where um, they all work together to help me, you know, have the life that I that I want. And I'm still still have a ways to go, but um, I was able to you know, get off unemployment a few years ago. Killer. And that was like a crutch that I used for a very, very long time. Yeah. I was, it's what kept me from going back into service because I didn't like it and I was bad at it. <laughs> it's it's very important <laughs> to remember I was bad at it. So doing something you're bad at when you don't like it it's be- is well, not fun. not liking it. It like kind of crushes your soul. And then you walk in. Yeah, but some people other like. their jobs like that. I have friends who it's like, that is the easiest way for them to make money and they can go in and they don't, they can shut off their brain and it's mindless Yes, and they do it and they make good money and then they can go and put their energy towards something else. I just, it sucked your energy. It sucked it. It just, I couldn't, I couldn't separate. I couldn't be mindless Mm -hmm. for me. If I wasn't acting, I had to be doing something that was using the faculties and like things in my education or my experience. And 
the perfect job it turns out for me really is to be an artistic director of a theater company. It's amazing. It's like I'm really good at it and I'm learning all the time and I feel like I'm getting better all the time. But the things I'm good at is really um, kind of encapsulated by this job. When you coach actors, right? Because we've yeah. worked together before. Yeah. You've been my TA in class for a while now. Um, how do you go about it? So like for the actors who are listening right now, when they walk into a coaching session, say mm-hmm. like, I have a guest star, I want to coach with you. It's right. six pages. What makes a good prepared actor to come in for a coaching session? Like what's an ideal situation for the actor to come in as? For the actor? Um, well, if you get a script, read the script. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it sounds silly and like, you know, basic. I laugh, but, but like, I get it. No, but like there's a lot of times, also a lot of times agents will send you sides and say there's no script. And sometimes I think that's not true. So I would keep asking, get the script. Most of them have it, especially if it's a bigger agency where there's probably a script floating around somewhere because they've offered a role in that show or whatever to one of their higher up clients. There's always something. I've also gotten it from people in my acting class before. Yeah, just ask around. I think you just have to... The preparation starts with knowing what you're preparing. Mm -hmm. So read the script. Um, Read the script before you read the sides. Read the story, understand the world before you only, because when you read the sides first and then you read the script, you're only focusing on your part in the script instead of really trying to absorb everything. Mm-hmm. So absorb everything. Do some research. Look at, if it's a TV show, who, is the, who are the showrunners, who's the writers, who are the producers? That's going to clue you into style, tone, what else they've made. You know, if, if you're reading something and you see that the creators are like uh, Greg Daniels, who was like you know from the office you know that that's going to be something different than the greg garcia or if you see the showrunners are much cohen who created will and grace a very different comedy from the office mm-hmm. you know you learn a lot about the tone of a show based on who the writers are so i think that's super important then look at the network that's going to tell you is it nbc is it netflix is it hulu is it amazon um all of that is really important for you to come in prepared i think the thing with co- with a coaching is a coaching is not the place for you to learn the material. Mm-hmm. The coaching is for you to play, explore, and hone in on um, the pieces of storytelling that aren't coming across. The the it's helping to make you more specific. So it's you know when you there's things you get stuck in, and it's helping give an outside perspective to to what it is. But we can't as coaches we can't really help you hone and find this the strongest performance for you if you're not prepared Mm -hmm. so if you don't know the lines I can't teach you how to learn the lines you know what I mean and I can't teach you to understand genre we can like talk about it and I can help get you closer to what I think it should be it's also important to remember that coaches are not the like unless we are the people who wrote the shows we don't know all the answers (laughs) right we're guessing too but we're coming at it from a really educated place of experience Mm -hmm. so and of trial and error and practice so it's a, it's, you know, we're coming out from an educated place. Um, I think if actors come in as close to off book as they can, that is a huge um, advantage. I think also coming in with the questions, coming in with, and we'll, we'll start a coaching by reading it through because I don't usually get the material ahead of time. So, mm-hmm. um, but why I'm a good coach is because I can pick it up and I can identify it very quickly. So we read it through once and I'll get a sense of exactly what it is. Sometimes I already know the project if I've coached other people or, if I just happen to know, know about it. Cause I try to stay very clued into what's out there, especially yeah. in the television world. Um, so you come in, we'll read through it. And then I, I want to know like, what are you bumping up against? What is something that you're struggling with? What are your thoughts? Um, how do you feel about, about the, this character, these sides? And then we'll just work moment to moment. 
until you, you know, feel comfortable. And yeah. it's based on whatever time you book. Um, I think some people need more time than others. I think when you do the coach taping, you know, we want to get it to where it's the best. Like being coached for a self-tape. Yeah, like doing a self-tape. So I'll keep going until we get that perfect, you know, tape for you. Sometimes with a coaching where it's just a coaching in person um, or even it's over Skype or whatever, it gets you to a place where it's like, all right, are you good to now go and do the rest of the work before you go in? So it's some people come to a coaching because they're like, I don't know how to break this down. So I need you to help me do this. And then I'm going to go off and do the rest of the work. And then some people are like, I've done all the work. I need to come in and refine. Mm -hmm. So it just depends what people's needs are. That's cool. And I do, I do a lot of both. I think think sometimes actors are afraid to, and this was me earlier on in my career, to invest in the idea of coaching for an audition. And I think it's, it's, it's a very weird thing that we do in this career that we have to spend out, that we have to spend out to develop. But I think it is I, it is so, so, so worth it for so many reasons, yeah. not just including the fact that at base value, you are doing your work with someone else. Isn't that our goal to just be able to like work a scene at the end of the day? Like you get to play with it extra. Yeah, you're, you're going to pay for it and you're going to pay for someone's skill. But I, I love paying actors for things. I love hiring and having a, a chance to fuel someone else's career and fuel the gift. And at the same time, I'm paying for a chance to to play as an actor. Like, Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing. The amount of money we put out for what we do mm-hmm. um, there, it, there is, and like, thank God we can. Well, this year the tax stuff is crap, but um, mm-hmm. normally we can write a lot of it off, you know, and have it not hurt us financially. But you, it's the same thing. It's like you want to get paid for your time as an actor, so a coach should get paid for their time of of helping as well. And I think you just got to put out money to make money. So there, and there are different ways to do that. Like I still, even though I'm a coach, I still pay for coaching. Um, I also have a lot of other people who are at the same level that I am that that coach as well, and so we do a lot of trades. So I'm not, so I'm not, we're not spending the money. But I have never, I don't think I've had a single audition in the last five years I've gone on that I did not run it or coach with somebody. I work every, even if I'm 100 percent sure I know what it is, I still run it with somebody whose opinion I value, because you need that outside. You can't, you can't work in a bubble. Also, you're doing a scene, you're not talking to yourself, so you need to be doing it with somebody else before you walk into the room and try to have like a full living experience. So I do that all the time. Um, And I think it is important to put that money out. You know, I still like every now and then we'll get new photos or I will pay someone to help recut my reel or, I mean, I do, I do do a lot of trading because I have a service to offer. Absolutely. Um, And I'm more than happy to do that. Uh, But I think it's really important coaching is very important especially when you're starting out and you don't have the perspective of the industry yet and there are things you don't know mm-hmm. and it's it's really if especially if you're not in class yeah you know a I lot mean, of times find it invaluable it's, yeah it's it's just really it's really important to get other people's sort of eyes on it you we're just not working in a bubble it's you know? so true and then when you walk into a room it's not well it should never be the first time you say it out loud but it's like it's not there's there's a confidence to I I worked this well even if it's three lines like I we worked with a co-star the other day yeah and it was more than that but like still it was and I just I was like oh I have this time set aside to work this and it feels so good I can't recommend coaching enough to actors you said uh speaking of spending out in your career investing mm-hmm. um we touched on casting workshops yeah earlier I'd love to hear your opinion about those 
So I'm I'm still a little confused by what's happening because I I kind of stopped doing them um, at a certain point and then like the, it seems like the world of ca- casting workshops like turned over. Basically, there's like two places that do them in LA now. Legitimately, but you can. And you, but like the rule is, them your you can't give them your headshot and resume. <laughs> it's but you know what I do? I mail it afterwards. Here's the thing: <laughs> I think the whole thing is fucking bullshit. In that the people who took down casting workshops. I think those are not actors who took it down. It's other casting directors who think they know what actors need or want, and they're wrong. I think they're flat out wrong. I think what Scott, maybe Scott David was making money off of it, but who cares? We're making, I'm making money off of teaching, mm-hmm. but it was still a valuable service. And he got so many people their first jobs by being on Criminal Minds. And sure, he, so he made a business off of it, but he also gave a lot of people their start. Yeah. And I think to devalue that and criminalize it is like insane. I would not be where I am coming to LA with no TV credits, totally immersed in the theater New York world and not knowing what I was doing out here. I spent the first three months I was in LA going to as many, I spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars going to as many workshops and I've made casting director relationships from those three months, 15 years ago that still carry me through to today. That if I hadn't have done that, I may not have met those people. Right. I may not... You know, I was, I think I auditioned for Bones like 13 times again. That's my lucky number, apparently, um, before I booked my guest star on Bones years later. But it started off, the first time I got called in was because I did a workshop with Helen Geyer, who at the time was the casting assistant, and she remembered me and called me in, and that was the start of a very long history of me with that casting director Mm. before I finally got got cast and then she went on to other offices and so she calls me in and but that relationship started because I had 15 minutes in a room with her with my headshot showing her what I can do yeah and I didn't need her to teach me you know like right now they're turning into it's like educational I don't want to be taught by a casting director I love casting directors I have the most respect for them but they're not acting teachers they don't have MFAs they didn't you know they're not trained in teaching actors they know what works for their shows or they they know what what they believe and Mm -hmm. they're really good at at that job but I don't believe that they're teachers yeah I like pretend it's just the practice I think some probably have become and are good teachers Mm -hmm. like from what I hear people who took Scott David like he is a very good teacher Mm -hmm. but I don't think that that's like 100% crosses over and so I was wanted to be casting directors to get their opinion on what my what I can do with my work to make it sellable for their show. Exactly. And that feedback I got from them was invaluable. Whether it was a feedback on what my resume looked like, what my headshot looked like, the work I brought to them in the room, what is off-putting in an audition, what they enjoy, what they look forward to. And I started doing those workshops back in New York before I even came to LA. So when I got to LA, I was just like, oh, I'm going to keep doing that because that was helping mm-hmm. Um, in New York, a lot of it was more, um, agents. It was meeting like agents and stuff. When I got out here, I had the reps, so I wasn't looking for that. I was just looking, um, to meet the casting directors. I made so many relationships. Honestly, when people ask me now, I I get calls all the time to have coffee with someone who like is just out of school or you meet my daughter or blah, blah, blah. And I don't know what to say to young actors when they're starting out because. But now you can just tell them to listen to this podcast. Well, yeah, now it's like I now I, re- I recommend podcasts, but I also I recommend class and creating your own content because the get the the shortcut to what got me into television quickly was getting in front of casting directors because people don't realize that a lot of those co-star roles, they don't release those in the breakdowns. They're casting from their files. I, I have friends who are casting associates who almost 100 percent put like set out appointments based on their files. They do not release those in the breakdowns. So agents aren't seen like. 
you're not privy to those auditions unless you know that casting assistant or associate. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is probably starting to fade away because now they're not doing them as much. But I, I just think they're invaluable. I think it's the only way for you to get into a room that you're for a casting director who's never met you because those casting directors are not going to the workshops. Their associates are. And their associates are the ones who are setting up the appointments. The casting directors are the ones making like the list for a lot of the regulars of the offers. But those associates are the ones you need to know. Yeah. That is your, your gatekeeper into an office. And some offices are really hard. They bring in the same people all the time because they know they can trust them to bring what they need and they're going to find the right person. Because it's true. They want you to be the person. You walk in for an audition – they want you to be the answer. It makes their job agree. easier. But you only get in that room sometimes if you, if you know people. And I, it's rare that I, I have an audition for someone I've never met at this point after all these years um, and been on the shows that I've been on. And people, they, when they respond to you, they want to go to the mat for you and they'll keep bringing you in until you get that job. But so many of those relationships were built on those first few months in L.A. 15 years ago going to as many workshops as I could like it, it, it's really true so if you the ones that still exist I know that cost more money and it's like three weeks instead of like one session or whatever I actually I mean, don't mind that I mean go to them you know yeah. like you're gonna you're gonna learn something and I'll attach where I've been going in and the you're gonna notes. meet people um but I did think that they were crucial um and it's part like you know you're your as an actor you're your own business we are our own functioning business so anything that w that's your marketing plan mm -hmm. right your marketing budget goes towards getting in front of people putting your stuff out there i th think that was way more effective than sending postcards yeah you know i don't know i did that for a long time as well i think i feel like that's kind of faded out a little bit yeah i use them as like a target like once i meet someone in a casting director workshop they'll get a postcard <laughs> like that kind of a thing yeah so i think but um really it's it's being able to point to the work cuz now it's like you can just send an email with your information and having a great website and having a reel up there and knowing that your reel if you don't if you haven't booked the jobs to create the reel you can still have a reel by creating material to put on it i know plenty of actors who've gotten big jobs off of taped auditions that were used as a reel because they did they hadn't booked something but they're so good they just hadn't had the chance yet yeah so a really great audition tape can be used as a reel as well last question yeah. i love all of this uh if you could tell obviously you said you're not sure what to tell new actors when someone's like meet my daughter mm -hmm. if you could tell then your former self mm -hmm. if they moved out to la right now what would you want them to know about this business it's not for the faint of heart, right? That's the phrase. I'm, mm -hmm. I mix metaphors all the time. So <laughs> that is the right way to say it, right? Yeah. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, you have to decide. I think you have to come in knowing you're going to be a lifer. I think you have to make really good friends that you trust and value and focus on maintaining those friendships in a real authentic way. Because at the end of the day, you have to have a life that you are proud of. And you can't have a successful career as an actor if you aren't like a healthy person and finding your, like when we get older, we choose, we choose our second family. So choose a good family, get those people around you and cultivate those relationships, put the time and the energy in and don't let them fall apart. You know, you're never going to be, I moved out here with four best girlfriends who it's been almost 20 years and we're still as close as we ever were. Amazing. And it's because someone gave us advice very early on that said, 
You are never going to be in the same place as you are right now. Like starting tomorrow, one of you is going to jump ahead. One's going to fall back. Two are going to fall off. Your careers will never be in the same place. So as long as you know that and accept that, you're not going to be jealous. You're not going to have animosity. And, it, and you're going to know that and, and, and that's going to just be a thing. And once we accepted that and knew it, it's, it's been really good. for It's how we've been able to maintain this friendship for so long. I really do think it's like the key to my success out here is just having a really good base of people and, um, you know, a lot of it. And it, and it was the base of creating this beautiful theater company that has given us all so much purpose and an artistic home. And um, I think also keeps us passionate about art. Yeah. So I don't know. I know that's no. like a, that's like a cheesy thing to say at the no, end of the day, <laughs> but I think, I, I really think like, you have to love doing this and you have to just never have a plan B, but know that sometimes you're going to have to make sacrifices to keep doing this, to have little side ventures of making money, um, not being afraid to talk about making money, not being afraid to ask your friends how they make money. There's too much stigma around us and how we talk about where our finances come from. I completely agree. And, and it's funny. And even at the age I'm at, I have friends who I have no idea how they make money. And I'm terrified to ask them because there's this like unspoken rule that we don't talk about it, you know? And I think, I think like if we can sort of get away, get, like get away from that and just like openly communicate about how we make money, how it's a struggle, how we live on the, the little bit of money we do make and make it stretch, you know? And then how does one save? How does one like, grow into being able to get married and have a family and like mm-hmm. these are all the things that like you should be able to do and still be an actor I don't think we have to sacrifice the life we want for the career we want we should be able to have them both and I, I say this to remind myself because I'm at the age where I'm like thinking about these things a lot and thinking about different choices I could make or made and I'm you know feeling optimistic like today that like it's all going where it should and I like I love that you say today because it some days it's it a feels, daily thing you know it's, it's so true it's true you know and sometimes like um sometimes I don't want to go teach a night because I feel like ugh, I haven't worked in a while like who am I I feel like a fraud you know I had these yeah. moments and I'll go in and be like ugh, I don't want to be here and then John will say something and sometimes he'll reference me as like as like a positive example and then I get reminded like that like to feel better about myself and that I, I get to see myself through someone else's eyes for a moment. And, um, it, that gives me the fuel to be like, no, I, I, I know what I'm doing. Like I'm going to, this is good. Um, and so sometimes you just need to be reminded by the people around you, like that, uh, just to keep chasing it. So you got to keep those good people around you. Keeping the good people around you is, you, you can't learn that in a book. No. You know what I mean? You can't buy a book or listen to a podcast for that. You can just like make good friends and mm-hmm. keep them. Stephanie, where can people find you if you want to pimp anything out? Ooh, um, you can find me. Um, my website is uh, thestephblack.com, Steph with an F. Uh, I don't know how totally up to date it is, though, to be honest. I'm really bad at maintaining <laughs> that. But you can find that. You can, um, Twitter is at thestephblack. Uh, Instagram is blackski21. Facebook, my name. Um, Please follow at I Am A Theater on all the socials. We have up-to-date information all the time about all the awesome stuff we're doing. We have a show opening on May 23rd called Mama Metal at the Atwater Village Theater. It's going to be quite a party. Um, 
what else do I have coming up? Um, I have a movie I'm in that's like on the festival circuit right now. I have a lifetime horror thriller movie that Fun. I don't know when that's happen- coming out, but I just did that in February. And then um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Uh, and then my... If people want to contact you for coaching reasons. If people want to contact me for coaching, um, you have to co- uh, contact me through um, John Rosenfeld Studios. Cool. And call and the, be in the, call the main office, yeah. Um, and you can reach out to me. Um, but feel free to always like... Uh, DM me is that how the, the kids are saying it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> on Instagram. I don't. I know nothing about social media. I'm the worst. Um, but, but follow her I think, anyway. I think you can like du- like direct message me on any of these platforms. So like Most do definitely. that. Um, yeah, and that's then awesome. other than that, just I don't. Yeah, I guess that's all. I, that's all I got. Thing, guys. That's it <laughs> at the moment. Drink margaritas with vodka in them. Thank you don't. so much for being here. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> this is awesome. This is awesome. All right, guys. I will talk to you in just a bit. And that brings us to the end of today's podcast episode. Stephanie, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all of that with us. And guys, if you want to get a hold of Stephanie for any coaching needs or to talk to her more about the I Am A Theater, she is all linked up in the show notes to this episode on OneBrokeActress.com. Speaking of that, let's talk about this week's solo episode. I'm going to talk one more time by myself on the podcast this season about time fillers and time killers. We talked about time management last week, and I think that touching on what is actually a very useful usage of your time as an actor in between projects versus what kind of sucks your life force out is a really important thing to hit on as we start to turn on to episodic season, quote unquote, coming up. And uh, as we come out of the big actor break of the summer, quote unquote, listen, everything is negotiable. I don't believe anyone. So uh, make sure to get me your thoughts on what is great to do in between work and projects and what is not so good of a use of your time. You can find me at Sam Valentine and at One Broke Actress and of course at OneBrokeActress.com. Guys, thank you so much for listening to episode 10 of this season. Thank you for Maggie Zabo for your beautiful theme song. Thank you, Laurel Canyon Creative, for being exceptionally incredible producing partners. And I will talk to you guys later this week. 